Welcome to the World Wild Podcast. I'm your host, Miles Irving. And for those who are listening for the first time, the basic aim of the podcast is to broadcast conversations centered around repairing the breach between people and landscapes, with a particular emphasis on the relationship between people and non-domesticated species and landscapes, in other words, wild ones, um, and um, particularly the ways in which people have related and, and can relate now to wild ecology. Um, so the podcast has a, an especially emphasis on wild foods and wild food culture, but we do touch on other land-based subjects, um, as will become clear from this week's podcast in particular. Uh, our basic premise is that wild ecosystems are complex, wonderful, and fundamentally life-sustaining. But by not playing a functional and integral part in them, we risk becoming authors of our own extinction. Uh, yet, on the other hand, by restoring the vital connection between ourselves and wild landscapes, both we and the land will flourish. So, without further ado, I will now introduce this week's guest, Alistair McIntosh, who is the author of two very wonderful books, Soil and Soul and Poacher's Pilgrimage, An Island Journey, both of which touch on his work as a catalyst for land reform in Scotland. Alistair has integral to the campaign to stop a mountain on the Hebridean island of Harris being reduced to rubble and shipped to the mainland by a quarrying company. Alistair's writing and activism is informed by a Celtic Christian liber and liberation theology perspective with justice and especially land justice at its heart. So Alistair, Welcome to the World Wild Podcast. Thank you very much for having me with you. Now, Alistair, when we first invited you, you, you wrote us a bit of a disclaimer because um, <laughs> I think you, you kind of assumed we wanted you to come on and uh, as, as an authoritative foodie and, it, and talk about... Um, well, that's certain. I, I had to say to you, I don't think of myself as a foodie. You've got me on that pretense and I'm a fake foodie, Miles. <laughs> okay. But um, when I think of someone... From the highlands of Scotland, um, maybe you're eating stuff that's coming from the land, and and uh, maybe less from supermarkets. And things I don't know. What 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 would a what would an average meal be? <laughs> well, with? I can offer you a number of options. You know, there's sheep's head broth, sheep's or head broth. <laughs> salted guga, yeah. which is the the gannet, or kyangfu pig, the liver stuffed. <laughs> I have eaten gannet. Yes, I, I sampled it once and. You know, it's a kind of local delicacy, um, a lot of controversy around it these days, but it's it's one of the ways in which indigenous people in a place stay in close connection with their environment. So, you know, on the one hand, it kind of seems appalling um, that you would eat um, gannets, uh, these magnificent seabirds with the um, yellow throats mm. and the black tips to their wings and so on that plummet mm. into the ocean. Um, on, on the other hand, you know, this is something that's gone on for hundred, hundreds of years in the Outer Hebrides. And it's very much part of the culture that keeps people connected to their place. And, and what I always say right. to people is, OK, you know, you might lose a few gamuts every year. But what it does do is it keeps people's finger on the pulse of life. And they will be the first per people to you know, to cry out as they are doing when they see things starting to go wrong with the ecology of the planet. 
Wow. Yeah. I mean, I often think that the issue that we've got with how we produce and consume food now is that there is no link between people and where it comes from. So you, you, you basically pull out that feedback mechanism. Horribly so. Horribly so. I mean, you know, we grew up in context on the Isle of Lewis where we would slaughter our own sheep and um, hens and so on. Uh, we would go fishing, of course, and what have you. But we were closely connected with those animals and fish mm. and birds. We, we, we had an intimate connection, whereas the problem with factory farming is it strips all connection away. There, there is no longer any feeling. Feeling is dis, disassociated from it. I think it's an interesting word, disassociation. Um... It is very much so. I mean, T.S. Eliot, the, the poet, spoke of the dissociation of sensibility, meaning the disconnection from the ability to feel. Yeah. And of course, people will say, well, you know, how can you kill a sheep that you have raised and eat it? How, how can you be so disconnected? But it's kind of like when you're in, an, in you know, a kind of semi-indigenous farming context, that's not really an issue because nature is doing that all the time. You yeah. know, you, you are living in an environment where nature is constantly feeding on nature. And yeah. so you come to see yourself as another part of the ecosystem. In fact, I was joking with people in the Hebrides on Twitter just today about mm. an article about sky burial in Tibet, where, you know, they put out the bodies and let the vultures yeah. come. And I was saying, you know, this could be a fantastic sideline for our community land trusts in the Hebrides, where you've got all these hungry golden eagles and ravens and hoodie crows and so on. And people could pay huge amounts of money to local communities to come and be sky buried in the Hebrides and everybody would win from it. What a way to go. You can choose to be eaten by an eagle after you die. That's, that's the... Well, you know, you know, you either have that choice or you have the worms or your carbon footprint goes sky high terminally yeah. with cremations so take your pick. you're making a case for this, you're really making <laughs> you, this you, you you bet i think i'm going to set up a company for it when we get off the phone <laughs> hebridean sky burials <laughs> fantastic so yeah people and land that's probably kind of integral to most of what you do and 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 write well yes because you know people think they can live disconnected from nature you even get some academics these days arguing, and I've argued with them at scholarly conferences, that nature is just a social construction created in the minds of people who live in cities and controlled by people who live in cities. And, you know, all I can say to such postmodernist forms of thinking is, come on out in my inflatable canoe with me on a windy day on the sea, or come on up a mountain with me. And then we will see how long your nature as a social construction lasts for yeah. when you're up against the realities of the elements, when you're up against wind and waves and freezing temperatures, all of that kind of thing, then there is no social construction about it. Yeah. You are in reality, actual yeah. rather than virtual reality. And that pulls you into a sense of being alive that dusts yeah. away the cobwebs that might otherwise um, give rise to a confused form of living. So 
it's kind of a call and response thing, isn't it? What you're describing there. It's, it's you get out in these wild elements and they draw something out of you that's, as you say, alive. And, and this, is, this, is, this is hitting your innate biology and, and even our ancestry of, you know, we used to be raw and naked in relation to um, the elements and, and, and ecology and so on. Yeah. Well, you bet. And, you know, it's not just used to be, we still are every moment. You know, I'm, I'm sitting here looking out the window, watching the birds, although it's February, acting like they're about to build their nests and so on in the trees. And beyond that, the blue sky. We are a part of the cosmos. Mm. We are a part of this blue planet. And in as much as we forget, in as much as we forget that we are part of nature, we enter into a form of madness, a form yeah. of hubris. And the challenge in our times is to hold that connection. The challenge is to remember that we are part of this beautiful universe. Mm. And that if we don't look after the planet, it is our own lives that we are cutting away at. Mm. But it's interesting, isn't it, that we only don't look after the planet because we're in this dissociative state that, that, that you're talking about, right? When The, the one feeds on the yeah. other, you know, it's a, it's a vicious cycle. Yeah. Uh, the more disconnected we become, the more we cause disconnection right. all around right. us. And so it's a bit like an alcoholic hitting rock bottom. It's not, it's not until we suddenly start to realize that things are seriously going wrong in the environment mm. around us that we begin to look at mm. ourselves. So in terms of that rock bottom realization, do you, do you think that the, um, the current coming back into focus of climate change in the news media and the schools protests and so on, do you, do you, do you think we're reaching that stage now with regard to climate change? Well, I hope we are reaching a stage of new awareness. The problem is that we've had over a decade of mainstream climate change denial with senior politicians who should have known better making capital out of making out that it wasn't happening because they thought that the whole climate change thing was some kind of socialist plot or certainly that there would not be any votes for them in any kind of austerity. And I think that what's happening now is that with things like, you know, this excessively warm February that we're having just now, the bankruptcy of the climate change deniers is being laid bare. The mm -hmm. corruption of the message that they have been put, put forward is being laid bare. The children are rising up about it. You've got movements like Extinction Rebellion coming about saying we have got to wake up. And that's the way I see this is that it is a basic call to consciousness. It's not just about what we do out there in the environment. It's also about what goes on inside ourselves in terms of the level of excessive consumerism that many of us engage in. That is the driver of climate change. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that excessive consumerism thing, I'm I'm. Obviously, we work in food, Alistair, and um, I've really been caught up with um, just what a metaphor that is for life in general, you know, that we can draw, draw all these metaphors from how people eat. Because, sure. you know, people, people eating the, all of this convenience food which, and, and kind of junk food, basically industrial food. But what you realise is, number one, it makes you sick, and number two it actually doesn't satisfy you. <laughs> well, you know, one of my favourite um, English theologians, 
has a line that goes, I can't get no satisfaction because I try and I try and I try. Ah, yeah. The Reverend <laughs> the Mick trouble, Jagger, the right? Is he's, you're trying the wrong way because, um, you know, if, if, if you try buying your food already cooked and processed for you, um, first of all, um, you, you, you get as little for your money as you can possibly get you away with. And secondly, you pay a heck of a lot of money for it. Whereas if you go out and you buy you buy the raw ingredients and you make stuff for yourself, if you make stuff from first principles, then you can live so much more cheaply and so much more wholesomely. If, if I go out, let's say the local fish and chip shop, if I go to the fish and chip shop and I get a piece of haddock and chips, it's going to cost me six pounds. And we're in a fairly cheap part of town. I've heard of places where it's up to 10 pounds yeah. for a fish supper. Whereas if at home I put some oven chips into the oven and I, I buy a bit of haddock from the fishmonger, um, I'm, I'm looking at a total cost of only about two pounds for the mm. same meal. Plus, I save myself the time because it only takes me 20 minutes to cook that up. Whereas if I have to go out to the fish and chip shop and queue and come back, it's a good half hour that's gone. The idea of cost saving and convenience is actually, it's an illusion, isn't it? It's just, we've, we've it's, just it's, been... It's an illusion. I mean, we've been, you know, hoodwinked by powerful forces of marketing into thinking that it's an economy, thinking that these things save us time, whereas they actually consume our time. And they don't nourish us nearly as well. You know, somebody once said, you can always make money out of people's laziness. Mm. So if you can persuade people that it's going to be less effort just going out to the carryout or buying a ready-made meal that you put in the microwave or something like that, yes, you'll make money out of it. But those of us who are precious about how we use our time, who see time as a valuable commodity is the wrong word, a, a valuable aspect of our lives. We need to think sometimes if um, if we will save more time by doing it ourselves, but also we can use that time in ways that are psychologically, or if you want to use the word, even spiritually nourishing, because it can become a kind of form of meditation. Well, exactly. And they're, and they're also kind of... Um... They're sort of braiding you in with other things, aren't they? When you, when you, I realised this when we we harvested a certain kind of seaweed, um, and then we processed it in a certain way. And the the idea was to get some <clears throat> dry granules that we could add to food because I'd learnt the spec for this seaweed is very very nutritious, and I wanted to have a way to just sprinkle it in soups and things like that. So we went down and harvested this stuff. I took my kids down. Um, and it's quite fun to harvest because it's very, very long and grows off the rocks. And we brought it back and and then we dropped these long strands into a blender, which the kids love that. They're standing up on a chair. <laughs> it, it kind of sucks them in it and just sucks them down into the blender. Um, and then uh, we had to spread them out into trays. We've got a big drying area and we put them in there, brought them back in and, and blended it down. But you see, we went through this routine two or three times. And the third time I, I realized I was beginning to feel a kind of emotional affinity to the to this seaweed. And, and, and it wasn't just the seaweed. It was the process itself. And I, I came up with this thought that, hey, I'm bonding with this stuff. <laughs> and it's it's like these daily activities that we do. They kind of wrap us in with the life cycles and the substance of 
other stuff and um and if, if if we're doing it with other people and sharing recipes and meals you know it's all it's all so like yeah it's a meditation but it's a it's also a kind of a weaving together you know when we when we do these practical things so Yes, well, I mean, that's the meaning of a staple diet. It's, you know, your staple diet is food that if you don't have, you don't feel fulfilled without. So it's all tied in. Yeah. It's, it's tied in socially. It's tied in with what we do with one another. It's tied in with um, with our environment. So, for example, you're one of the examples that I give in Poacher's Pilgrimage mm. is I reflect upon how when we were, when I was a boy, I would often go down to the shore at the head of Loch Lobost and collect mussels on the low tide. Now, you go down to this place and there's a semicircle of rocks just at the half tide mark that people in the distant past have put there because that's where the mussels grow best. So you gather <laughs> the mussels off those rocks and then coming back, um, you know, we would be on our bicycles, those of us who had bicycles, and we'd be balancing the one-gallon bucket full of mussels, which was enough for a family feed, on the handlebars of our bicycles. And we'd be cycling yeah. along in this very wobbly way. And, you know, it, it came to me the memory that we would say to one another, this is good for the practice. This is good for the practice. Now, we would never ask in those days what the practice was for, but there were lots of things we would do. You know, if we saw a, a drainage pipe going over a river or something like that, we'd walk across it and we'd say it's good for the practice. Now I look back with an adult eye, the practice in question was about connecting to our environment. And okay. do you know something, Miles? It came up very strongly this past Christmas because my wife and I rented a cottage for three days. And we had a tin of wild boar stew that we brought back from France, <laughs> but it was a it was a dodgy kind of tin, and the tin opener didn't fit. And we were thinking, how are we going to open our tin of stew? <laughs> and then suddenly, a kind of inburied memory came back to me, and I got a small sharp knife, and I put it in the edge of the tin. I banged it in with the palm of my hand, and yeah. I worked my way around the edge yeah. of the tin. My yeah. wife said, how did you know how to do that? I said, you know, I had completely forgotten that I knew how to do that. But it's the kind of thing that when we were children, we used to do for the practice. There you go. Quite broad and far-reaching, this practice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's practice for living, yeah. you know. It, it is practice for the practice of living. And that's why it's so important. I know you do a lot of work with school children and wild food and so on. It's so important to get children out into nature and get them gathering plants. And if you're into it, fishing or, or, or whatever it might mm. be, tracking and all the rest of it, making all of these connections. Because it's not just the food, but it's a whole set of um, body, place, one another connected skills that we learn from each other like that yeah yeah i mean i suppose um i suppose the thing that we're we're talking about here more generally with with this issue of people being disconnected and dissociated is it, it to me in a way it's it's an extraordinary thing that it's managed to happen because what used to exist between people and land is so strong and robust there's like such an intricate web of culture and 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 biology and and history and memory and so on that the, the the fact that people have managed to undermine and get between people and 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 the landscapes 
to create this dissociation. It's an incredible thing. Uh, but I suppose what what we're thinking about, and I the, I think with a lot of the work that that you're doing, it's about how do we re how do we reweave that fabric in one in in many different ways. Well, absolutely. And you know, just to give an example of what you were talking about, the problem with respect to the land is what in Scotland we call the clearances, both right. highland clearances and lowland mm. clearances of people being forced off the land to make way for big landowners with sheep ranches and so on. And in England, you call the enclosures. Mm. Now, the only difference between the two, really, is that in Scotland, they were very much more recent in history. You know, in Scotland, there were clearances taking place within a century of my life. I was born in 1955, whereas in mm. England, you have to go very much further back in history to get there. And just as an example of how little awareness there is of this in England, because it tends not to be taught. It's not taught in school histories very much and so on. No, it isn't. Today, I was preparing for um, some talks I'm going to be giving in England in a little while. And I started Googling to find images of the enclosures, expecting there to be lots of old etchings from books and so on. And, you know, I only found two or three. There was hardly anything at all. And mm. the scale of the lack of awareness of what has been done to the land in England, the depths to which people have been colonised from the from the Normans onwards, the you know the social class system, the feudal system that got imposed, and then people pushed into cities, disconnected from the land, and no longer really knowing how to connect. The, the sheer scale of it mm. horrifies me, and that's that. Of course, is why in Scotland we've made such a big thing now out of land reform. Well, I mean, I'm aware that the situation is very different. Uh, I mean, it, it, in in Scotland, as compared to England, I mean, I, I was saying to you earlier that the the difference I see between England and Scotland is just that everybody in Scotland is still really pissed off about the clearances. I mean, I hadn't really taken the point that slightly more recently, but but I think that that the still is there isn't that depth of awareness and just the sense that we have been basically robbed of our land heritage down here so that you guys up in Scotland it seems to me have started to do something about it um I mean it would be great to hear some of the stories um Alistair from um the 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 two the two um stories I mentioned earlier from your soil and soul book could 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 we touch on that a bit because those were quite pivotal weren't they in sure well I mean what 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 happened there is that around about the 1970s, there started to be a, a, an awareness of the clearances coming into Scottish culture. And in the 1980s, you had books like James Hunter's The Making of the Crofting Community and so on, which, which fed this awareness. But also, and this is hugely important, though often not recognised, you had the artists, the poets, the songwriters clicking into the same thing and okay. starting to recover the history that we had lost. And that is where the, you know, the, the kind of righteous indignation of, of it came from, that people started to grow in consciousness and awareness of what had happened. And that the reason why we have urban poor people is because they are the consequences of intergenerational poverty of people who were kicked off the land. So what started happening is that come the 1980s, 1990s, quite a few of us in Scotland started thinking, what can we do about this? Mm. How can we get the land back? How can we have land reform? 
Now, in the case of my own work, I had been working in the 70s and 80s in Papua New Guinea, where 95% of the land is community owned. And people were there were saying to me, these Papua New Guineans were saying to me, we thought all of you white people were rich, but how can you be rich if you don't own the land? Mm. So I came back to Scotland with, you know, having been fired up by these, um, you know, some of them, they're just so deeply connected to their place, these Melanesian mm. people. I came back fired up with that. And a man called Tom Forsyth, who died recently, came to see me when I was teaching human ecology then at Edinburgh University. And he says, egg is up for sale. How about we start a trust and try and bring it into community ownership? And egg so, being that, an island uh, off the, yes, off the west right. coast of Scotland, yeah. You've got it, you know, 7,000 acre island, 3,000 hectare island off the west coast of Scotland, owned by one man. And the community reduced from 400 before the clearances to just 60 people at that time. So basically, you know, to cut a long story short, we got a movement going, which introduced the idea it might be possible for the resident community to own the land in a land trust. And at first we were laughed out of the house. You know, even a newspaper like The Observer was mocking us, saying this is a crazy idea to think you can get rid of landowners. Mm. But at the end of the day, in 1997, by which time the trust was wholly taken on board and owned by the resident community, 1.6 million was raised and we bought the island into community land ownership. And now, you know, Groups come from all over the world to study what is happening there because the population is regenerating. The young people are coming back because of the affordable housing they can live in. There's all kinds of small businesses. They've set up their own electricity grid, egg electricity, which runs on hydro, solar and three small wind turbines. And they buy their own electricity from themselves. It's just all go. And they've even got a microbrewery now. So you can, you can have a pint of egg ale while you're at it. <laughs> and, and, and Miles, this is being replicated um, over large areas of Scotland now. So, you know, there's now something like over 400 of these land trusts in Scotland. We've got 560,000 acres of Scotland's 19 million acres. That's nearly 3% of the land surface is now held by communities who are becoming empowered. Well, that's fantastic. I mean, it sounds a bit like, you know, to, to, think, to think of a metaphor, it sounds a bit like that Isle of Egg campaign was the thing that sort of broke the rock open and got the got the water of land reform flowing. <laughs> yeah. Well, there we are. You know, it, I think it is about working with providence in the sense of providence. Mm. It is about recognising that the that the earth is a common treasury, as Gerard Winstanley, the great English land reformer, put it. The earth is the common treasury. But mm. when people are denied that and instead have to pay rent to the landlords, um, they, they, are, they are reduced to a form of slavery. And not only that, but, you know, when I go down to England, it shocks me that you can't just go somewhere and start walking across fields and woods and what have you or canoeing down a river. 
um, you, you'll be done for trespass. Uh, we don't have any law of trespass in Scotland. We've got, a, a, under our Land Reform Act, we've got a right of freedom to roam, including camping for one night in any one place. And so, you know, we can feel that our land belongs to us. So, you know, to put it in the contemporary parlance, Miles, we have taken back control. And when I hear English people say, we need to take back control, I think, yes, right enough. Start with the land beneath your feet. Yeah, you don't want to be, yeah, yeah, you're looking at the wrong enemies there. Yeah. You're looking at the wrong enemy. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not the, well, in my opinion, it's not the Europeans or whatever that's the enemy. The, the enemy is our own social class system that has colonized us since the Normans, has created these big estates and created the idea that land is just a commodity to be bought and sold. Land is not a commodity. Land is a place in which the soul finds its rest and meaning. And when you deprive people of that, you do something very damaging to them spiritually. And I think that's part of the problem of our times. Well, yeah, I mean, I th I think so too. And I, th I think that there's there's another side to that equation too, though. I, th I think that the land responds to us when we're, when we're properly embedded within landscapes as we used to be. Um, you know, there's, there's a thing that the conservationists come up with about keystone species. I think we're a keystone species. You bet. You bet. And, you know, there are certain forms of conservation that fail to recognize the role of people in the ecology. And that's, that's mm. why in my work I emphasize human ecology, that we, mm. we need to be there along with the eagle and the, you know, the, 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 the beaver or the whatever it might be. Uh, we are in there too, but we need to understand our place and um, populate the earth, but not overpopulate it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was a there was a great study in in Australia about the the future of the outback, and the the primary conclusion of this massive study with lots of scientists and academics and so on working on it was that you need you need the indigenous people to get get back into the into the outback because it's just been dying since they left you know well people that's used it to... and you know I'm, I'm speaking to you from governing glasgow which is the um former shipbuilding area um an area with multiple deprivation on a number of parameters you might know of it through the bbc's rab c nesbitt show <laughs> and and the reason my wife and i live here is because we're involved in a project called the galgale trust which is best known for building traditional wooden boats okay but, at the heart of it all, you know, we we have young unemployed people coming in and we teach them how to carve things out of wood. Mm. And they'll typically carve animals, which are basically totem animals. And what we say to them is, you know, choose your animal and consider what the qualities are, the psychological, if you like, spiritual qualities of that. What might that animal teach you? And you see them starting to come alive. And then, you know, we'll go out on the boat. And I remember one day out in one of our boats here in the River Clyde, right, you know, in Glasgow, actually seeing a salmon leap out of the river and the swans and all kinds of things you won't see unless you're actually on the water. And mm. you see people start to come alive again. Yeah. Um, we, need, we need the animal spirits, if I can put it like that, mm. to understand the, the beauty 
um, that is latent within our own spirit. And you know, I'm not just talking animals. I'm talking about mm. uh, you know insects and uh, flowers, plants, and so on. All of that. Trees, of course. I mean, we yeah. don't just carve things out of trees, but we've also got a portable sawmill. Like I used to work with in Papua New Guinea, and now people cut up their own timber. Whenever there's a storm, we get phone calls to come and pick up trees that have blown over. <laughs> so we actually make yeah. our own timber down there. And all of this reconnects people. And so it's, it's beautiful because you get folk who've come from urban deprived backgrounds here in Glasgow, and just, they start to become knowledgeable and passionate about the ecology. Yeah. Yeah, because everybody's, you know, we're all animals, aren't we? We're all, we're all a species that's evolved. To, we, we are, you know, too often these things, these things, are, you know, I, I'm from a middle class background. My parents, my father was a doctor and I've got a PhD and so on. But too often access to nature is confined to middle class people who can get into cars and get out and afford to be out there. And politically, that's appalling. You know, you're not going to get support for nature conservation if you keep nature only to the rich. Yeah. It has got to be there for everybody. And <clears> our experience here in Govan is, is that when grassroots people in cities are given the opportunity of learning how to connect again with nature, mm. deep things come alive in them, deep memories get stirred, uh, a deep sense of meaning comes about, and lives which might have been disordered by poor mental health or drug abuse, alcoholism, um, being in and out of prison, um, broken homes, all of that kind of stuff start to heal because people reconnect with beauty. And of course, all of the, all of those all of those issues people are saying now, like addiction, is basically a a fundamental problem of relationship that you I lack so, yes. things yeah. because yeah. you're not able to connect in the way you might. And 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 and, and the uh, mental health stuff is basically because you're stuck in this non-relational space and you can't form the relationships that would get you out of it. And but but I think that there's a there's another dimension to it which 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 fits in with the with the kind of human to human stuff and that's the human to land stuff we we also you know like cuz the, the all the uh, early attachment theory around um that's right psychology is about you know we 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 have this basic thing of being held and nurtured but i feel when i go out into into the the woods near where i live i feel i'm being held and nurtured by the forest i don't know if you feel like that it's well, you it's, see, I think the word the word we have to bring into I've used the word beauty, but it's the word that underpins beauty is love. Mm. That we are living in a universe, not just a world, but a whole universe. When you look up at the stars, that you can view in one of two ways. You can say it's all totally meaningful, meaningless. Right. Um, it's it, it's just matter out matter and energy out there. And there is no meaning to it. Or you can consider the possibility that you might be held in the palm of a hand that is vastly greater mm. than we can even comprehend, that we mm. might be held in a love, that, the, that what makes us very life, what makes our next breath possible, is that we're held in the hand of love. And what mm. happens when you go out into nature, or right now, you know, I'm looking at the setting sun through trees here in Govan with all the birds up in the trees, and it's just beautiful what I'm seeing through my window at the moment. When I see that beauty, that beauty activates a sense of love, a sense of connection within me. Mm. And you think it's beautiful to be alive. And when that happens, 
you start healing within yourself, but you also start to become a presence. You become a power that can heal others around you from their historic brokenness that violence has brought upon them. Yeah, yeah. So I guess we're touching there on some of the um, the kind of more theological thoughts that underpin some of your work. Um, how about your pilgrimage across um, Lewis recently? That oh, oh, goodness. Well, what I talk about in Porch's pilgrimage. So what happened there is that, you know, from a spiritual point of view, Miles, um, I started off from an agnostic position of not knowing whether, you know, whether there was such a thing as spiritual reality or God or whatever you want to call it or not. Just being open on that question, but mm. not knowing. And then partly through studying Eastern religions, particularly Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, but also rediscovering the Christian scriptures, especially the four Gospels, um, something started to wake up in me. And... I became more and more convinced that we are living in a universe that is held in a divine hand mm. and that it, it's, if you like, a, a playground in which we we learn to grow up spiritually and we learn that we are, uh, as Ram Das, an American Hindu spiritual teacher, puts it, we're all walking each other home. We're all walking each other home. Mm. And that sense of walking, that sense of pilgrimage started to call more and more on me and 10 years ago I felt moved to make a pilgrimage through my own island the Isle of it's called Lewis in the north and Harris in the south so I set aside 12 days for it and I took a rucksack and tent and enough food to last a week at any one time because I was going to be you know it's four days without meeting a single person out across the moors and mountains and I walked from the most southerly to the most northerly tip of the island over those 12 days and what happened Miles is that as I walked I felt myself walking more and more into the island not just in an outward geographical sense but also in an inner psychological, spiritual, and when I moved into the villages, social sense also. Mm. And so I found it a very profound experience, especially in the seven years that it then took me to write the book. So it took me 12 days to do the walk and seven years to write the book, as my wife um, pointed out. Um, <laughs> that's something like 200, day, 200 days of writing <laughs> per day of walking, because it just, you know, the depths of it, the layers and layers of depths just opened up. And what that did, what that sense of being called back to the island in that way did, was it showed me levels of reality about the place itself that I had previously not understood. Mm. I called it a poacher's pilgrimage because the island is very Presbyterian in its religion and you know, Presbyterians don't do things like pilgrimages since the Reformation. So what was I going to say to people I'd met, uh, who I knew, the people I'd grown up amongst along the way? Well, I had a fishing rod with me, mm. partly to catch my food as I went. And I, uh, I could say to them, I'm, I'm on a pilgrimage. I'm going from loch to loch. Poaching was my fishing rod, hoping I might catch a salmon. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> it was a bit of a jokey way of of approaching it. But of course, as you know, as I walked the uh, the spiritual depths of the place and the reminiscences and 
the setting of those reminiscences into the realm of contemporary issues like climate change and in particular war really opened up because I, I, I came at it um, as somebody who quite often speaks at military staff colleges at the UK Defence Academy, etc., um, about nonviolence. Mm. And so I, I had just come back from speaking in Geneva to NATO military and diplomats about nonviolence. And as I was walking, the thoughts of the Afghan and the Iraq war were going through my mind. And tying that in with the traditions, I mean, this is going to sound like make-believe, but tying it in with the island's traditions of the fairies, and especially J.M. Barry's play called Mary Rose, where okay. he talks about a little girl in the Hebrides taken away by the fairies. And what he's actually writing about is what war does to children. He's writing mm. about war trauma at the end of the First World War. It's just so relevant to the world we're living in today. So in Porteous Pilgrimage, I'm weaving all of those things together and trying to lead my reader into a deeper understanding, not just of the island. That's in a sense, you know, um, not the main purpose in a way, but rather of the issues of our time that we're facing with, of ecological connection, of social connection, of spiritual connection. Mm. And... The name that you mention in in um, Poetry's Pilgrimage for for uh, Lewis and Harris is it's, it's the isle island that is the island that's visited. Is that right? Oh uh, well, J.M. Barry um, in introducing this island yeah. on which he locates the play Mary Rose, which he wrote in 1919, um, speaks of the island. He says it's described by the island, the locals as the island that likes to be visited. That likes to be visited, right? That likes to be visited. So you've got this sense that a place, a place within a place, an island on the Isle of Harris on a loch called Loch Foshamid, where G.M. Barry spent a fishing holiday in 1912, is a place that wants to draw people to it, that the place itself wants to be loved, you might say, to mm. connect in with what you were discussing earlier. Yeah. I mean, I was I was thinking in saying that, um, because I've, I've read a great deal about the um, Isle of Lewis revivals, which are connected with the oh, yes, yes, Presbyterian yes. churches. Um, yes. Um, which many people would probably describe as divine visitations, but I wonder, I wonder if that that aspect of the island's history played any part in the in the pilgrimage. The, the sense that people have had this great spiritual awakening in the past, and people out in the fields have suddenly become greatly conscious of the presence of God, and even there's some stories of people coming across the water towards Lewis and during these revivals, and they had a sense of. of a, a real tangible presence of divine love and so on. Um, I wonder what it is about those islands that that has um, that has seen those things happen over and over again. Well, you put it very beautifully, and I think a lot of island people, if they heard you saying that, would be very touched by it. You'd get some who say you're talking complete rubbish. It's all make believe. But I can tell you that many of the deepest tradition bearers on the island would, would love it the way you just described it there. I think what it is, is that in the Presbyterian tradition, which is a Calvinist tradition and one that theologically I'm very critical of, mm. but in terms of the people in that tradition, the people who raised me, 
there is a very deep understanding of providence. Mm. You know, they have the Westminster Shorter Catechism that asks a question, how does God execute his decrees? To which the answer is, God executes his decrees in the works of creation and providence. Hmm. Now, that sense of providence or providence anchors you in with the land. The land is the source of providence. Mm. And so when you've got a people, an indigenous people, as most of the islanders are, certainly in the time when I was growing up, who are so close to both the land and each other, it also brings them into a closeness to God, mm. especially, you know, a maritime people who are putting out to sea, often suffering tragedies at sea, and it, it, it pulls them back into that source of irrepressible grace mm. by which their lives time and time, time and time again, would find healing after tragedy. Mm. And so I, I think that that's part of what is going on there. I think there's many things going on in terms of the spirituality of the Outer Hebrides. And it's not just the Protestant ones, because you find similar depths in the Catholic islands in the south. Okay. There's many things going on, but a lot of it has to do with the intimate connection with place, with the beauty of the place and all the rest of it, and the, the depths of community it was necessary to have to survive in the past. And what's happening today is, is really fascinating because... You know, people thought they were going away from that. They were leaving that behind, that we were all becoming modern in the 1970s and 80s and so on. And now you're starting to see a younger generation. And, you know, all the time, Miles, I get emails from younger people in our island saying to me, you know, we're wanting to reconnect with these values because we've been out in the outer world. Yeah. We've been there. We've seen that. We've just set it all around. And now we're realizing we've got something precious here and we mm. want to learn how to look after it again. Oh, that's so good. That's so good. And can I just say, Miles, you know, I'm sure that some people are thinking all this stuff about love the land and does the land love you and all the rest of it. This is all a bit woo-woo sounding, as the Americans would put it. What's the yeah. evidence? What's the evidence for all of this? Well, there's a number of forms of evidence because, you know, I, I'm scientifically trained. And so the question of evidence is actually an important question to me. I don't like just make-believe for the sake of make-believe, mm. although I do deeply believe in imagination, which is what the understanding of fairy is all about in the tradition. So what yeah. is the evidence of this? Well, two main forms of evidence that I would point to just to be brief about it. Mm. One is actual spiritual experience that both indigenous islanders and people who, when they go and walk in these places and spend time in them, will quite often recount having spiritual experience when the universe opens to them in a way they had not had before, in ways that show them that we are part of something much bigger, that we are held in the hand of cosmic love, if I can put it like that. Yeah. So spiritual experience is one of them. And the other one, which is hugely important, certainly in what's happening politically in Scotland these days, is the way in which the land nourishes the arts. So it is from the okay. land that a, a lot of our music, mm. a lot of our artistic creativity is coming from. And <clears throat> so, you know, when you ask the question, how does the land speak to us? 
It speaks to us through musicians like, for example, Doogie McLean with his classic line, you can't own the land, the mm. land owns you. Mm. Well, the other thing I would immediately comes to mind in relation to the Isla Lewis, we we went along to some of the um, Sunday services at, at uh, some of the Presbyterian churches in, in Lewis. Yes. And we had the breathtaking experience of, of hearing the, the Gallic Psalms. I mean, uh, I have never heard anything like it. Um, it's, it's, it's just another world, isn't it? Yeah. It's just another world. And, you know, a, a, a famous Presbyterian minister, the Reverend Angus Smith of, of Cross Free Church, um, he describes it in an interview as being like all the sounds of nature coming mm. together. And right. it's sometimes described as waterfall music. Okay. Um, if your listeners want to Google, Google Gaelic Psalms, and, mm. and they'll get to hear a bit about it. The only thing that I always say to visitors is that when you go to the islands, if you want to hear that in Sunday morning worship, um, if you are not a Gaelic speaker, and I'm not a Gaelic speaker myself, by the way, um, you know, I, I work a lot with Gaelic words and ideas, but I, I don't speak Gaelic. But if you're not a Gaelic speaker, um, and you're going along to a Gaelic service, it, it's respectful to ask the minister or the church elders if that would be all right, first of all, so that they don't okay. feel you're just using them as a tourist shoe. And usually what you'll find is that they'll have both a Gaelic and an English service. For example, mm. at the Free Church in Kalanish, um, of the famous Kalani stones. They, they, they have a, a Gaelic and an English service back to back on a Sunday morning. And what I've done is I've said to the minister, you know, may I come along to both mm. so that I'm hearing your sermon and all the rest of it in the English and, and we sing the English psalms as it is in that church. But I'm also getting the experience, the feeling of it in the Gaelic. And, mm. and that way, um, it's, it's respectful to the culture. Mm. People really appreciate that kind of respect being shown to, to, to their customs and how they are. That's good. That's good. Could could you say a bit about the um, what, what the what the Gaelic Psalms are like, and and uh, you probably know a lot more than I do about the about the origin of that kind of music. But, um, well, nobody really knows. Mm. Um, nobody Just it's really old, knows right? the, the origin of it. Um, it's it's based on what they call lining out or presenting. So it's from a pre-literate era. Mm. Mm. when you would have a presenter, P-R-E-C-E-N-T-O-R, who would sing each line and then the congregation would follow. Now, my own twice great grandfather was a famous presenter. He presented in the early assemblies of the Free Church and his, um, his tunes were written down um, eventually by the German ethnomusicologist Joseph Mainzer. So... Um, Murdo McLennan of Strathconnan was 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 was, a, was himself a presenter, and the way that you know he and others would do it, the way you'll hear it if you go to a Gaelic service on the island, is that the presenter will start off singing a line, and then the congregation kind of come in behind him, and the presenter then moves on to another line, and it all just melds in together. And they'll, you know, often they'll all be singing in different pitches and keys and so on. Yeah. And yet it just melts together, like the Reverend Angus Smith said, like the sounds of nature yeah. melding together. And it yeah. just has it, it just has a, an enrapturing effect. Um, the School of Scottish Studies at Edinburgh University have produced a beautiful 
CD of Gaelic Psalms. And so, you know, if people want to check that out, mm. you, you can go there. Um, you also mentioned the revivals of the, um, particularly the 1950s revival led by the Reverend Duncan Campbell. And Duncan's son, Archie Campbell, is a Quaker like myself okay. in the Edinburgh Quaker meeting. And his daughter, Mary Campbell, is now an award-winning folk musician. And so, you know, if you Google Mary Campbell, and you'll hear some of Mary's work, you know, some of it, she's written about her grandfather's evangelism because she was curious to understand what he was about. She's got a beautiful mm. song about that. Mm. But, you know, listening to some of it, it's, it's pure shamanic music. You'd, you'd think you're in, you'd think you're in um, amongst the Sami people or something like yeah. that. It's just totally trippy stuff. If I might use that expression, and what I'm what I'm loving about this, you know, Miles, is on the one hand you've got this kind of, you know, sometimes hardline Presbyterian tradition, and yet coming out of it, you've got all these branches, as younger people uh, are finding their own way with things, and what I just see coming pouring out of it, is deep spirit, deep soul, mm. Mm. Um, deep deep sense of community. And that all tied in with getting back the land because the churches have been important in land reform, both in you know a century ago, but also in recent decades or two, the churches have been important in moving it along because they understand the land is the basis of community. They understand that when Jesus in his mission statement in Luke 4 talks about I come to proclaim liberty for the captive and you know freedom for the oppressed for the hungry the poor and all the rest of it he ends in Luke 4 19 I think it is with a line saying and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and what's meant by that mm. is the Old Testament jubilee the land ethic mm. the idea that land and human hands always falls into injustice Therefore, every 50 years, as they had it, you need to have a redistribution of the land. And there you've mm. got Christian anchoring into that Old Testament land ethic. And what I love about the islands is that they're places where you can talk about that kind of thing without feeling embarrassed. And you can see it feeding into political process, which actually brings the land back into the hands of the people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, which is, which is wonderful, yeah. Yeah. Oh, goodness me. The starlings have just come into roost on top of that tree I'm looking at. Um, beautiful. Fantastic. So this this sort of land based thing there in in um, in Lewis and, and you keep using the word indigenous, you know. Um, yes. I, I think I think it's fantastic because I mean, I'm I'm very. Uh, preoccupied with different land based cultures around the world and 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 understanding their way of being on their land and it gives rise to different kind of spiritual approaches and different ways of living and so on but the idea that scottish presbyterians are also indigenous and and they they have oh yes, they yes. Have their and, own... scottish, and scottish catholics and scottish muslims yeah. and you know um we don't have to be exclusive about it um yes very much so that you know we are indigenous and if we don't feel we're indigenous the calling of our time is to reground in being indigenous mm. we might not be native to a place but we can become indigenous to a place if we respect it and listen to it and its peoples in the right way 
Okay, so that's that's the nature of being indigenous for you. Is the is the it's the relation of respect to land and 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 the people who are there. The way that I put it in one of my poems, a poem called Scotland, but it could be anywhere, is a person belongs in as much as they are willing to cherish and be cherished by this place and its peoples. Mm. Peoples plural, because the downside of what I've just said to you is that some people take that in a xenophobic way. Yeah. And I, you know, I give talks in England and people say, well, we, you know, this is wonderful, but we couldn't do it here because we'd be accused of being racist. And I say, well, why would it be racist to say that you want to recover English indigeneity? And they say, well, because that would feed into the BNP and white yeah, yeah, yeah. pride yeah, yeah. and all the rest. Of it. Yeah. And I say, well, we don't have that in Scotland. In Scotland, we say that a person belongs in as much as we say we have proverbs like the bonds of milk count so the the bonds of milk are stronger than the bonds of blood mm. nurture is stronger than blood lineage mm. blood counts for 30 fold milk counts for uh, see blood counts for 30 fold um, milk counts a hundred fold we've mm. got all these proverbs that are about the double sacred duty of hospitality for the short term and fostership or adoption for the long term. So mm. it, it doesn't matter if you're a Syrian refugee or if you, you, you're the Windrush generation or something like that. If you choose to belong here in Scotland and you're willing to respect this place, to love this place, mm. then as far as we are concerned and as far as the Scottish government is officially concerned, then you are Scottish. Mm. So you have an inclusive rather than an exclusive sense of belonging to police, of national identity. And that allows you to create a place with beautiful values and with mm. rich cultural interchange. One Scotland, many cultures, you know, that's that's one of the captions, one of the posters that the Scottish government created to help advance yeah. this understanding. One Scotland, many cultures. You, and, you know, a lot of English people, they, 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 they believe that same thing. I mean, most liberal English people would say, yes, one England, many cultures, but it's not strongly enough there in the narrative. Um, no. And, it, you know, in, Sc in Scotland, we can really assert that. We can quote our poets. We can quote our poets like Hamish Henderson, looking to a time when black and white another marry it. Black and white will marry each other. Mm. Or Robert Burns, for ah, that and ah, that. It's coming yet for that man to man, the world around shall brothers be for that. Our greatest national poet is teaching that Scots internationalism. So you can be very much of this place, but also very international. Think local, act global, act global, think local. See, the trouble with all this you're saying is, is, is it's going to mean everybody's going to want to move to Scotland, Alistair. <laughs> well, what I would say to you, Miles, is do it in England because England really needs it. You know, that's why yeah. over these next few weeks, I've got a number of speaking engagements. Yeah, tell down us in about England. that. And, and by the way, I should let your readers know, your listeners, sorry, know that I was actually born in Doncaster. My okay. mother is from Birmingham. My father is Scottish. When I was four years old in 1960, 
um, he, he brought us back to Scotland and I grew up on the Isle of Lewis. So, you know, I'm speaking from somebody who's got a foot in both you've England got a, you've and got a Scotland. Stake down here too. Yeah. 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 And, and, you know, I, I think there's a real need for this kind of thinking in England to counter the kind of xenophobic, racist narratives that we hear. And to say that, you know, to be uh, to be a real English person is a person who loves this place and who will stand up for people being loved in this place. Yeah. Um... It's all God's world, you know. It's <laughs> the, the nations are there to help us to find ourselves, not to divide us from each other. But all the same, I think I think you guys are, are way ahead in terms of all this land reform stuff, which which, again, it's amazing to see that that, that movement came out of the uh, community buyout in, Le- in Egg, pretty much, didn't it? There was a in Egg and Assen, There were one or two other things yeah. going on at the same time. Um, um, but, you know, it, it, it started it started by saying, you know, we must be audacious about this and mm. we will lay a claim to right. You know, we we went and we registered a charitable trust that we call the Isle of Egg Trust with the declared aim of bringing egg into community land ownership. And the, the landed classes were kind of saying, what? You know, how can you do that? What cheek? Um, you can't do that, old chap. Um, a convener of the Scottish Landowners Federation sort of said, nobody takes Alistair McIntosh seriously. Well, um, well uh, uh, you know, I'm, but there's a lot of Alistair McIntoshes in Scotland and women ones because women's power, let me say, women's influence on this is profoundly important. Mm. The land reform we have in Scotland would not have happened without the women of Scotland deeply driving it and powering it up from within. Fantastic. You hear that, especially in the music of people like Mary Campbell, who I just mm. named. Um, yeah. And, you know, once you get that sense of legitimacy, that this is not only okay, but it's also what we're called to do. I draw on the Latin, you know, Latin American liberation theology and where I was coming from with that and what I was taught in Papua New Guinea in the villages there. Once you've got that sense of legitimacy, then watch out landed power because you're welcome as part of the community, but no longer lording it over the community. Or as the granddaughter of a woman from a village that was cleared said to me just the other day on Twitter, her grandmother, who was known locally as Lady, when mm. Lord Leverhulme visited her village, she said to him, Lord Leverhulme, you may think that you are a lord, but you are not my lord. Quote Evelyn Cool from the village, from North Locks in Lewis, from my part of Lewis, telling me that just this week. <laughs> Well, these voices that 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 um, all sort of chime together. I'll, I'll tell you what the thing the thing that um, I was most moved by, and I was very moved by your Soil and Soul book. I have to say, um, but the part that got me the most was the story you told about driving in that Land Rover and yeah. hearing hearing that. Could you could you talk about that? You heard a sound in in your kind of in your mind's eye. I don't know what you'd say. But. Well, yes, and. You know, what happened is that this was on the day that we launched the Egg Trust. Oh, we, um, we the, the day that we um, presented the Egg Trust on the island of Egg with the people deciding to take a, a secret ballot as to whether they supported it or not. Mm. And 
as we were being driven over in the back of a Land Rover with no seats, bouncing about in the back, it's being driven across the island. And I, I was scheduled to give this um, probably the most important speech in my life to the entire community, pretty much gathered there. To kind of make the case to them that they needed to, to take make, it on, else to, it wasn't. To make, to, to make the case that they needed to take this step in order to, <clears throat> in order to prevent the community from slowly dying. In 1991, this was <clears throat> October 91, I think it was. As we were driving across the Landover, a strange thing started to happen to me. I started to, it was as if I was hearing thousands of voices in my head mm. and as if I was flowing in the river. And the voices were the river kind of thing. And the voices were the river. And it kind of said to me, it basically said to me, you know, these are the voices of the ancestors. We are with you. Wow. And years later, about oh, 15, 20 years later, in reading about the great Scottish folklorist Hamish Henderson, I came across his expression, the carrying stream. That the culture of a community of place is a carrying stream that flows through time. And on a number of other occasions, I felt myself touched or immersed in that cultural flow, which I think is what you hear when you listen to Garlic Sam. Right, right. And more than that, I've spoken to a number of other artists and musicians and so on who know exactly what I'm talking about. And so if we listen to the animal spirits, if we listen to the voices of the ancestors, including those not yet born, if we understand ourselves to be part of the great cosmic flow that is outside of space and time, that belongs to eternity, mm. but which we touch on and sometimes see more deeply into and are moved by. If we are open to those movements of deep spirit, then I believe we start to be given the means yeah. by which to change the way the world is. Because that's, that's, that, that is something that is, it's, it's a resource to support us. It's like we're connecting with that, with that goodwill, with that aspiration. And, you know, one thing I want to say is reading, reading, reading that account, I thought, well, who were those um, ancestors? I mean, you've made me think now by saying about future ones, but like in, in, in terms of thinking about the old people, Yes. Now, if you go back far enough, they wouldn't have been. But up to a certain way back, those would have been people on their knees praying. So well, you see, I think yeah, you've put, you've nailed it. You know, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as is in heaven, if I might use a Christian prayer. And remember, mm. I'm very open to Islam, to Hinduism. I draw on many different faiths, but if I can focus in on the Christian, mm. the kingdom come. This is about our forebears being in constant prayer. This is about some of our people today, you know, whether they're Buddhist monks in the cave in Tibet or whether they're Hebridean Presbyterians or Catholics in their little churches up north or whatever, constantly praying. What do we mean by praying? We mean constantly being in a deeper field of consciousness that helps reality to give birth. Yeah, yeah. And when we yeah. when we start to touch on that, when we realize that we too can be a part of that, 
then hidden sources of power. You you spoke of the metaphor of hitting the rock with with, with a stick and the and the spring gushing out of solid rock. Spiritually, that is the imagery of what happens. Mm. If you if you hit the hard rock with your pilgrim stick, well, the spirit, the water of life, will flow out of it. And I think there's a thing about conscience there. I mean, the, th- the thing that strikes me about those Hebridean revivals, I could just keep going over it and over it. But but the but the the thing that happened to people is they had what they would call a deep conviction of sin, right? So, th- th- in other words, to, I mean, sin is not a very uh, commonly used word th- these days. But but we know when we're out of place, right? We know when we've gone against. The, the common good we know when we've gone against our own conscience and that that idea that spirit brings us into a place of accountability where suddenly we recognize you know i could be this but i'm that you know i could be the one that brings this however we put it thy kingdom come or, or you know the, yeah. the, the good yeah. on the land yeah. the, the 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 repairing all of these horrible um dissociative breaches that we're talking about i could be that but instead i'm this frivolous person that just yeah i don't know whatever but the thing is that's that i I think that's something that we need you know you've got people now going on pilgrimages to to peru different kind (laughs) of pilgrimages right to take ayahuasca in a in a um in a in a uh indigenous context but that 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 experience is bringing people to the same point in a sense, yeah. because th- what they're doing is facing their own conscience. That's what that's what that thing strips bare, and um, yeah. I I just think you know, do it how you're called to do it, but just do it. And and from my point of view, you nothing gives me more pleasure than when I hear of people going to the Hebrides and maybe climbing Mount Ronyville in the south of Harris, the mountain that we managed, you know, a whole lot of us, including most of the major environmental agencies in Scotland in the 1990s, managed to save from being turned into a roadstone quarry. And mm. when I when I get emails, as I do, from people or snail mail letters saying, we went there and we climbed the mountain and we were moved to varying degrees moved with spiritual experience. Nothing gives me more pleasure than that. Or when I hear people going to the island saying, you know, we decided to go along to one of the island churches. And yes, it was all very fundamentalist and all the rest of it. And yet there's a quality in the people that touched us. That that just delights me. Mm. And it reaffirms them. You know, it reaffirms the island's values. And... um, I just think, you know, go to these places and especially, you know, you, you don't have to travel to Peru. Um, you, 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 you can come in a respectful, low-key, gentle way and just walk in the islands. Go to the people's churches if you're so inclined. Ask them about spiritual issues. Expect a whole range of answers. Be prepared to be taken by surprise and be prepared to be surprised by what you might take back from such places in the periphery into the center you know when the center collapses when the center collapses the periphery becomes central this is what we're talking about 
Yeah, and and the and the and the landscape of Scotland. I mentioned when we spoke earlier, like the, in terms of these spiritual awakenings, they seem to have happened more in in Scotland than anywhere else on earth. I don't know why that is, but um, it and and the and the, the, the does. Okay, the, one of the stories that struck me most as I've read these accounts, um, I, I'm sure you must be aware of this, but but several times in different places on Lewis, people prayed um with with it must have been some kind of level of spiritual integrity or earnestness or something where they just touched something but the thing that they touched caused the following thing to happen and that is that the earth shook the buildings shook have, have you heard those accounts the, the, the which they sorry the, the, it was like there was an earthquake everybody oh, felt right. the building shake right no i haven't actually heard those accounts i mean there's and there are a number of accounts of revivals in the 50s and so on, um, where there is debate on the island as to whether it was, you know, over-exaggerated what was going on or not. What I would say to all of that is that when a person encounters authentic spiritual experience, when, you know, you might be walking along in nature, and something starts to open in you, and you see reality at a more deeper level. It is an earthquake experience. Mm. So, you know, I would be dubious as to whether buildings actually shook or something like that. Oh, that's pushing um, the boundaries for you, that one. Okay. It, yeah, from, you know, that would be, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't feel it's necessary to go there. Spiritually, it's not necessary to have that kind of miracle. But what I would say from you know from first hand experience is that these things are inner earthquakes. Right. Uh, the, 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 these things split you open inside and and just um reveal reality. You know, we're talking yeah. about the revelation of deep truth here, well, the truth that just set you free. Yeah, I mean and and I don't have a problem with that, but what, what I love about those stories, which by the way I do I do kind of take quite Literally, it does seem there was a lot of eyewitness accounts for um, two of these events. But is the idea that the land responded? Yeah. Yes. Yes. The, 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 this isn't just a thing of, of I don't know. We're touching some oh, kind yes. of heavenly yeah. spiritual sphere that's yes. got nothing to do with here. You know, the yes. idea that those guys or ladies or whatever it was, they just touched a nerve, which, which yes made yes. the earth shake you know because for me yes. one of the one of the one of the most amazing things in the in the christian spiritual tradition is is uh um the eighth chapter of um the apostle paul's letter to the book of romans because that talks about the earth groaning the yes, earth actually groaning Ro romans 8 or romans 12 i forget yeah. which as if, yes, 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 groans as if in childbirth. As if in childbirth, and the child yeah. that that's trying to bear is us. Yes, we, we, we actually for humankind to get together. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, the us getting our act together. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the very best bit of St. Paul for my for my money. That particular yeah. passage. But I think you know one of the things I was doing this Porch's pilgrimage is when people ask me what it's about. Um, one of the answers that I will give is that I have written an ecology of the imagination. Right. Because what I realized in that walk and in writing about it is that reality itself is birthed in the imagination of the divine. Mm. And God said, let there be. Reality itself is the expression of divine imagination. 
And when we work with our imaginations, when we work with the creative arts or whatever it might be, mm. then that of the creative, that of the imaginal in us starts to move into sync with that of the imaginal and the divine. And so you find yourself walking through this landscape that is the birth of divine imagination. And it starts to just explode your own imagination at the same time, which is why the music and the art and the poetry right. keeps pouring out of right. it. That's, that's how I see it. And to me, that's the earthquake. Um, you know, whether you get literal earthquakes as well, I will leave that for others to decide. But for me, the actual earthquake the volcanic explosion, whatever metaphor you want to use, mm. is that cosmic experience of living creation. Well, that's certainly the one with lasting consequences. I'm good, yeah, I'm good. that's really made me think. Um, the the the, uh, the the um resources that you mentioned with the Galax Arms and um, Duncan Campbell's granddaughter, yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll we'll definitely get those. To be on the notes for this so that people can check it out because yeah duncan's um, granddaughter yeah. barry campbell yeah great because that's that's yeah. music that that, yeah. that reflects the very thing that you're you're talking about there yeah that's that's wonderful um do you, do you want to just say a little bit about where you're going to be speaking and and perhaps we'll get some links to that um i'll oh, put my a goodness, link you... to your diary on on the uh, the notes uh, i'm speaking part. i'm speaking this weekend at the Malvern festival and then at the um, beginning of um, at the beginning of um, March, I'm speaking to the Progressive Christian Network, and also at an event in Leeds. The PCN Network event is quite close to that. I'm speaking okay. about what I call third millennium Christianity, um, Christianity based centrally on the non-violence of Jesus and the, uh, the understanding of the cross, as ironically. Um, a symbol of active nonviolence. The cross mm. absorbs the violence of the world, is how I put it. I'm also running a workshop with my colleague Matt Carmichael from Leeds at Woodbrook Quaker Centre in, when is it now? It's in um, July, I think it is. Um, go on my website. Sure, we'll put a link to your diary. And you've got all the yeah. itinerary there. Um, give me a number of talks and events around the place. Um, I'm running a week at Fintorn Community in August on spiritual activism, a whole week, looking mm -hmm. at the spiritual underpinnings of activism for social change. Um, I've got a one coming up in Sky in April, a week-long event there. You'll find all of that, uh, Pilgrimage of Life, that one is called. Um, you'll find all of that on my website. But I'm yeah. keenly aware you have friends coming around for dinner, so I, I better let you get off. Um, yes, I've got somebody from the Isle of Skye, Crofter. You're one of these young tradition babes from the Isle of Skye coming down to dinner. So we're having, well, I bet not tell the vegetarians, but we're having um, Scottish lamb for dinner. I'm afraid, yeah, that's one, my one great sin, Miles, my one great sin in life these days. I've had many in my time, but my one great sin these days is eating more meat and fish than my ecological footprint justifies. And okay. that's just a problem of having been grown up in an uh, environment like that. It's deeply embedded in me, and I have to confess that one. Okay, well, we forgive you, brother. <laughs> um. <laughs> well, thank you for the quick absolution. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure if that's good enough. But yeah, no, I don't know. Sure, I don't know. Well, you, can, you, can, you can have it if it's any good well to you, but, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Okay. okay, man. Look, lovely talking to you.
and you we'll 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 do it again i hope thank you goodbye good uh, you'll go well everybody and i hope this has nourished you in some way Back to the land.